0: This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexham-Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. On today's show, we're going to rural Pennsylvania to learn how hospitals in the state's underserved areas are working to improve care for sexual assault victims. Throughout the United States, there are more than 800 hospitals and other provider sites where victims are treated by specially trained sexual assault nurses. But in Pennsylvania, 40 of the state's 67 counties either don't have any nurses with this expertise, there are too few to ensure they're available consistently, or they're not experienced enough to do the job.
1: They may have some people that are trained, but they're an ER nurse who often just said, nobody in my hospital knows how to take care of these people. I'll learn, but I'm still, my primary job is to be this other thing. Um, so they'll learn it, but it's not their only, you know, and, and ideally, you know, when you need a expert care, you hope that person is really engaged in that work on a regular basis, right? You don't want your nephrologist to sort of do kidney stuff. <laughs> In hopes of improving the situation,
0: a new pilot program is underway. It's called the SAFETY Center, and SAFETY stands for Sexual Assault Forensic Examination Telehealth. Basically, the program uses technology to connect less experienced sexual assault nurses at rural hospitals with expert practitioners and other resources to deliver high-quality care. So throughout the show, we're going to hear from several nurses on the front lines who are involved with the program.
2: This way, we have people that choose to do it and are trained to do it well, and they're not taking away from the rest of the staff. I think it's it's really important.
0: We'll also hear extensively from the principal investigator who came up with the idea for the Safety Center Initiative. We'll get a sense of what the major challenges are for a program like this, including what it will take to sustain the program long enough to garner evidence that it's effective, especially for rural areas where there tends to be higher sexual assault rates and fewer resources for victims. Our producer, Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media, spent time on the road interviewing the various nurses we're going to hear from on today's show. Our first stop takes us to State College, where Stephanie sat down and talked with Sheridan
1: Miyamoto. She's the principal investigator for the Safety Center. I am an assistant professor in the College of Nursing and with the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network at Penn State University. I'm also the director of the Sexual Assault Forensic Examination Telehealth Center here in the College of Nursing.
3: Sheridan Miyamoto's career in research has focused where many would rather not tread, caring for pediatric sexual assault victims. She didn't necessarily set out to get into that, but then an opportunity came up when she was about a year out of school working at a family practice in rural Southern California.
1: I got a letter from UC Davis that was looking for nurse practitioners who could moonlight in the hospital for sexual assault victims, um, pediatric and adolescent. And I had no idea if I could do that work, but I really loved working with children and had student loans to pay, and was really excited about working in an academic medical center again. So I applied and um, was trained by really just phenomenal nurses that, you know, I was so worried about doing the work that these would be broken, crying children, and, you know, could I do that? How emotionally difficult that might be. But the nurses that trained me were just exceptional, and It was not at all uncommon in our clinic to hear kids laughing behind their exam room doors. We created a truly safe environment, and they taught me how to do that.
3: Ultimately, Sheridan found the work rewarding.
1: It was just a passion. I loved it. I then left my practice and came to UC Davis and worked in the Child Advocacy Center there full-time for over 10 years, seeing victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. And while I was at UC Davis, I had colleagues that were doing telehealth around other things, you know, dermatology and pediatric intensive care. And they started to have conversations with us about, you know, we do this for other places where you need to bring an expert and one doesn't exist. And we said, this is perfect. We had tried to support nurses, physicians in rural areas by inviting them to come every other month and we would share cases and we would try and do review together. It's not nearly the same as doing it in real time.
3: Sheridan and her colleagues helped pave the way for a telehealth program in five rural counties in California for pediatric and adolescent patients who were victims of sexual assault. They ended up developing a new way to deliver specialized care to these victims in underserved areas. Basically, the system that they devised brings the support and knowledge of experienced sexual assault nurse examiners or SANEs to hospitals where there are inexperienced SANEs or none at all. Using high-definition cameras and video conferencing technology, they can lend their expertise and provide peer support remotely. They're present in real time during the examination while the patient is there. And later, there are also peer reviews to improve the process so that the local Saints become experts themselves. Sheridan ended up spending more than a decade at UC Davis, and then in 2015, she left California to join the faculty at Penn State's College of Nursing and Child Maltreatment Solutions Network. It's an initiative that grew out of the university's response to the Jerry Sandusky scandal. After seeing a grant opportunity from the Department of Justice to develop innovative care for adolescent and adult sexual assault victims, Sheridan came up with the idea for the safety initiative. And just as in California, she recognized Pennsylvania's rural communities have a dire need for high-quality care for victims.
1: There are a number of reasons why the focus on underserved areas matters. First, there are very few healthcare providers who are really trained to do this work. When they exist, they often are trained in academic health centers and large metro centers and then tend to stay there. So the other part is that even if there is a rural provider who seeks out that training, goes back to their home base to be that response and be the answer in their community, they may be doing it by themselves. So we often see a lot of turnover. So we just really don't, one, across the nation, do not have enough people that are trained to do this work, certainly to staff every emergency department. And then the second part is there are very limited studies, but there was one done in Pennsylvania really looking at the burden of sexual assault and that of those who report that while the numbers are low in rural communities, the rates are higher in rural communities. So we know that The burden is potentially higher in rural communities, and that's where we have this dearth of expertise to really handle it well. And to add difficulty to that, when you're in a really small rural community, it can be much more difficult for somebody to come forward. You know, anonymity is a challenge when you're in a really small, everyone knows everyone community. Um, So it can be really difficult for
3: people to come forward. And so for Sheridan, when someone who's experienced trauma does decide to come forward in that sort of environment, it compounds the importance of having a really timely and thoughtful and skilled healthcare response that addresses injuries, concerns about pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, and the emotional and psychological trauma they've experienced. But there's also the forensic component, because sexual assault, is a crime. And so medical care providers need to know how to collect evidence that can hold up in court and enable perpetrators to be appropriately prosecuted. In fact, that last part had a lot to do with why one pilot safety site got on board. And we'll hear more about this later on the show from the chief nursing executive there about the importance of collecting usable evidence. But getting back to Sheridan right now, she's going to break down for us how the three pilot sites were even chosen in the first place.
1: We widely put out requests for people to let us know if they'd like to participate, and we sent that to all of the rural hospitals that we know of in Pennsylvania. And we got probably 25 back where people gave us some information about how many sexual assaults they'd had in the last year and some readiness factors. Did they have nurses or people who already had some base level of training? For this grant, we weren't offering brand new training, but as long as they had a willingness to send people for their kind of base 40-hour didactic, that was an interest of ours as well. So we compiled that feedback. I also presented at one of the Office of Rural Health's meetings and talked about the program to let people know what we were doing and got some interest that way, and those people responded to our call. We then sort of looked at You know, we want to make sure that we are in a place where there are enough cases that we can really begin to demonstrate whether we're having an impact on quality. So we need a certain number, and we kind of base that at we hope you have at least 10 cases a year. If that's your average, then we really think we can do something to make a difference there. If people have so few, it's, you know, the program to launch this is expensive. We put a lot of resources into training, education. And then we began to have conversations with those that met some of our criteria and looked like they were really interested. I went out to meet hospital administrators and we invited hospital administrators, nurses. We asked them to bring whoever they felt needed to know about the program to the table. And some of that was really telling. You know, These are some of the lessons learned from from California. You need to have hospital administrators that believe this matters because there's no oversight currently
3: To really get the program off the ground, Sheridan and her team also needed to understand what emergency rooms were facing each day at the potential pilot sites.
1: In rural and underserved areas, there are very few that have a 24-7 response that is a response with someone who has training in provision of forensic sexual assault care. So knowing that that's rare, some have maybe one person who has some training, if they happen to be on, then you might get that person. Otherwise, anyone in the emergency department, often then a physician, but it may be a nurse physician combination, get tapped, handed a box, and they try and read through this really complex process and all of the instructions that go with it. And you can imagine as a victim who's just experienced a horrific event, to come in and have your provider (laughs) reading instructions, you're not getting the emotional support and the care that you need. My confidence would be shaken that this person is prepared and ready to care for me.
3: Ultimately, Sheridan and her team selected three pilot sites at hospitals in Tioga, Clearfield, and Huntington counties. I ended up going to one of the three sites, which is the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hospital in Wellsboro. It's a community of 3,000 people in Tioga County, not too far from the New York border. Besides the hospital, a nearby prison is the main source of relatively stable employment in the area. Tioga is also part of the Marcellus Shale, and so fracking trucks rumble through town every so often, even though the boom has quieted. Unlike some other communities around Pennsylvania that have fallen on hard times, Wellsboro's downtown has occupied storefronts and historic gaslights along the main street. There are Victorian houses with front porches and beautifully maintained lawns. Even the hospital is red brick and designed to blend in with the surrounding architecture. When I visited Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hospital, it was National Nurses Week, and the head nurse for the emergency department had been on vacation, but came in to talk with me because she feels strongly about the safety initiative and the positive impact it's had so far on the department. Lara is the unit director for the emergency department and has worked there for 10 years. She's been a nurse for 20 years and previously spent time as a cancer researcher in suburban Philadelphia. When Lara first moved to the Wellsboro community, she was working as a phlebotomist. And the story she told me about how she ended up going to nursing school is pretty amazing. I ended up in a doctor's office,
2: and I was not licensed as a nurse, but I was operating as a nurse for one of the physicians. One day, my daughter came to me and handed me a, asked me for a check for $10, and asked me to sign a piece of paper. And. Being a teenager, every time I turned around, she needed something. I just signed it, and a week later, I received notification that I was enrolled to be tested out for nursing school. Your
3: daughter did that.
2: My daughter did that.
3: How old was she?
2: Uh, Thirteen. She
3: just wanted. She's like, you should be a nurse.
2: Well, she felt that. Yeah, I was frustrated because I, I there's certain things I couldn't do because I wasn't licensed. So the following year, I went and I got my LPN, and I worked at a nursing home for three years then got my RN and became the supervisor at the nursing home for a couple more years and realized that I wasn't developing my skills. So I came to the emergency department.
3: When Laura thinks back to her early experiences in the ED, she recalls there wasn't any training or support for nurses tasked with treating rape victims.
2: When I first started in the emergency department as the rookie, a rape came in, and they handed me the box and the paperwork and said, follow the directions. No one had any formal training, so I went in and did it, followed the directions, you know, and did it, I think, a fair job, but we don't do them that often. Maybe there'll be 10 cases in a whole year for the whole entire ER. But when those cases come, it's usually when we're busy, and the victim would have to sit in the quiet room and wait till a nurse could be freed up for the couple of hours it takes to do a good job collecting. Sometimes they laughed. And as they were telling you there, the next day, they don't want to talk about it anymore. So I would call them and ask them, come back in. At least let us help you get hooked up with the right agencies, get some medications, the antibiotics, Most folks didn't want to do that. At that point,
3: they just wanted to forget it. Those experiences stuck with Laura and ultimately prompted her to pursue formal training as a sexual assault nurse examiner, or SANE. The training is open to RNs or advanced practitioners with at least two years of experience doing advanced physical exams through work in settings like emergency rooms, critical care, and maternal child health.
2: This way, we have people that choose to do it and are trained to do it well, and they're not taking away from the rest of the staff. I think it's, it's really important.
3: Laura went through the same training and wanted to really develop the expertise and figure out how to deliver the best possible care to sexual assault victims. But when soldiers and sailors decided to roll out the safety program, Laura was skeptical because she was concerned that the hospital doesn't treat enough sexual assault victims in general and that very few in that small group would actually consent to participation in research as part of the pilot. And I asked Laura to explain the process of what happens from the time a sexual assault victim comes to the emergency room. So she's going to tell us now in depth about what's involved. Can you walk me through the process sure. of what happens so a um, sexual assault victim comes to the ER? Comes
2: to the ED registration. And so ED registration calls back to the church nurse and says we have a rape, uh, an assault victim. She looks at the, see who's on call. And if it's me, she's going to call me at home. I'm going to say, okay, put them in either 7 or 10, whichever bed is available, and do the initial assessment. I call into safety and say, I have a case. And the operator says, okay, I'll call the on-call, and she will connect with you. Then I drive in, and usually I get halfway here, and they call and say, what do you have? We have a victim who's 21 years old, was on a date with her boyfriend, and things got out of control. As far as I know, there's no major injuries. She's being assessed right now. So they say, okay, I will get set up and get on the telemonitor and call me when you're ready. So I come in, and I go see the patient and introduce myself and explain what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. What I say is I have a partner at Penn State who is gonna be on video, who is gonna be in the room with us on a monitor and help me do the best job I can to get your your kit. And at that point, I have yet to have a patient say no. Maybe because I'm older and young people are so much more used to video, to technical things, I don't know, but they really They don't mind. It's like, at this point, okay, whatever's going to get me the best kit possible. So then I go back to my office, and I text the TELUSA nurse. And she comes onto the monitor, and we connect on the monitor. And I tell them, okay, I was just in there. There's no obvious signs. They said there wasn't any strangulation. Because if they would, there would be more. There would be CAT scans and things involved. There's no obvious injuries and they're not in any pain at this time, and this is what basically happened. So this, okay, so then we both go into the room together and I bring them all of the equipment we need. I introduce, this is my partner, and she's been doing this for seven years. And this is a three-way communication. Usually, every time, there has been somebody from the advocacy, from Haven, in there, sitting with the patient. And so then we have to go through all the paperwork for signing, it's okay to do research. And then we open up the Pennsylvania Department of Health Rape Kit, and we start from the head, examine the head, was there, did they bite you, did they kiss you anywhere, we're going to swap. I'm going to look, we we'll would take pictures, we'd feel the whole head, make sure, because a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever been in an accident, you just don't know. You wake up in the morning with a sore arm and you have no idea. It happened during the accident, but you don't know how. So we do a thorough check the head, make sure they didn't bang their head, they don't have lumps, because they're so upset that they're not even paying attention to... Their physical well being. Before we do the exam, they do tell their story and we write it down and we have to ask them some really specific graphic questions, such as Did they kiss you? Where did they kiss you? Where did they place their penis? Was it in your vagina? Was it in your anus? I mean, we have to ask each individually. Legally, we have to. And they get about halfway through it answer no more. It's a hard time. When we're through with that and that part's done, they can really take a breath. At that point, we're addressing the medications. We have to give them their antibiotics. We have to discuss the morning after pill. We give them a shot of a broad-based antibiotic. Rocephin, what we're doing is we're treating for any kind of possible STDs, pregnancy, HIV, and we give... um, clindamycin, or uh, Zithromax. So once we've given that to them, at that point, we're wrapping things up, and sometimes there's questions. Sometimes we're handling, where are you going from here? They will meet with the advocate again. The advocate will be with them the whole time. And then when we're pretty sure that they emotionally have got this, we can let them go. But it does take about six hours. It's a long period of time. It really, there isn't any part of it that isn't important.
3: And to help get a better sense of what this process looks like and how it actually unfolds in the emergency department, Laura showed me around. She started with a gynecological exam cart kept between the two rooms designated for sexual assault victims. It has all
2: the things we need for the rape kit like the woods lamp, all of the equipment that we would need for lighted speculums. And this is the actual box that we put the,
3: so it's called a sexual assault collection kit. Sexual assault evidence collection kit, Pennsylvania kit for hospital use. So this is wheeled into
2: the room. And when I first introduce myself, I usually bring in that cart so that try to get as much of the equipment in there as possible without overwhelming the patient. So then I go back to my office and I text whoever's called me and said they're on call. And this is our safety center monitor. This is the camera. It's handheld. We actually put it on here. Which is a tripod. Which is a tripod. And we can put the camera here and then when we're doing our pelvic exam, it lights up so it gives us extra light and we can adjust it so that when we're taking the pictures, um, this is how we take the pictures with a little button. It's
3: like a handheld. handheld
2: button. The patient actually gets the button because we're doing a pelvic exam with gloves on. When we're ready to take the picture, We say, can you snap the photo? And they snap it. They are part of the process. Well, that's novel. Yes, yes, that's definitely, and they don't mind doing it. And I think it gives them some sense of control, you know, that they're involved in the whole process of getting their evidence collected. So everything is hooked onto here, onto the cart. We call this the cart. Um, We have a monitor. We have, this is the camera that the telesane can actually activate the camera and then they can focus any part of the room they need to. When we're meeting, they'll focus it right at me, but then they'll focus it on the patient. We can put this on photo and scan the documents. We need the whole entire kit, paperwork, from the assault kit scanned into the record. So everything is, all of the evidence, the paperwork is all kept together.
3: You have to explain that this is a research project. Right.
2: And we have a case log for every case. We just have to write in the name, the patient's identify uh, medical record number. And then this takes us through how to set up the camera, set this up, get everything ready for the patient. And then we introduce the Telusane to the patient and then they do the research consent. And we help the patient go through the whole process of what
3: happened. We write it down. And how do you write that down? Uh, Notes or do you type it in Or or?
2: We actually use the kit from the Department of Health. Okay. So once we've gotten their permission and there's safety center permissions as well, then we go through the brief history and then we have to get their statement of what happened. And we're supposed to put it It's specific to what the patient tells us in quotes. Yeah, I see There's where it says, left. place
3: quotation marks. Right?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. And this just tells what the circumstances were at the time. Had they drank alcohol? Did they change their clothes afterwards? And then who was the assailant? Do we know them? Did you do any injuries to the assailant? And then the weapons. What did they use? Were they kicking you, pushing you, strangulation? This is the physical assessment, and this is especially important for strangulation. Okay. Okay. You know, there would be neck pain, petechiae, those kinds of things. And then we have to ask them every question, penetration by, and we have to ask each one of these things. And then we go into the exam, and this is the genital area. And then any bruising, we have to mark it on here. And this whole paperwork basically goes through every part of the exam. What we collected, the samples that we collected, where they were from, and then these are the medications that we gave, and the discharge instructions. Uh, what each medication could do to you
3: as far as side effect. And um, do you feel from the legal aspect with the safety program that you're just able to be a lot more comprehensive?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes when I'm focused on my paperwork, you know, you're trying to get every, everything documented, you may miss something that the patient is not saying. And that's where the safety center comes in because she's seeing the whole entire room. And she's sensing, was there something else you wanted to say then? Oh, I didn't see that. I'm busy writing my paperwork.
3: As far as how the Safety Center has implemented the program at its partner hospitals, Faith Mong has been instrumental. She's helped train the various local SANE providers and the Telesanes, the ones doing telehealth, to communicate in this way. Faith is the clinical education and training coordinator, and she's also one of the eight expert level Saints. When she was younger, Faith hadn't considered nursing. She actually wanted to become an artist.
4: My parents would not sign the student loans for me to go to art school. So, um, you know, they're like, pick a different field. And I'm like, okay, well, everyone's doing nursing. I'm going to go do that and see how that goes. <laughs> uh, so I can't say that I have a very. You know, like you meet some people and they're like, I wanted to be a nurse from the get-go. This was my calling in life and they knew it. I did not know I wanted to be a nurse until I had my very first patient that just needed somebody to sit there and listen to their story and be heard because I didn't have that type of environment at home. And I didn't know that that existed until I really started working in the inner city of Harrisburg and realized that there's a lot of people that didn't grow up the same way that I did, with a loving, caring home. And I think that's what really started to drive me towards how can I continue to help this underserved population.
3: After Faith graduated from nursing school, she immediately started working in an ER in Harrisburg.
4: I heard about sexual assault nurse examiners and the great work that they did. And I was, you know, the opportunity just kind of landed in the lap that I worked for a healthcare system that wanted to see this succeed
3: in their communities. So Faith got trained to become a sane. She did the first few exams under the guidance of another sane at the hospital. And then it was her turn to do an examination by herself.
4: I got called at two o'clock in the morning. There was a teenager at the emergency department that needed a sexual assault exam. So, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, so I get out of bed and I'm like trying to get myself together and the thoughts start racing through my mind like, holy cow, like I am the primary provider for this patient. Everyone's gonna be looking to me to know exactly what I Need to do. I was two years into my nursing career at the time. So I was, you know, I was a fresh fish. And what I perceived at the time, this teenager's ultimate care was in my hands. What to do, what not to do. They're going to be looking to me for the answers. So, you know, I'm driving into the hospital and I had about a 45 minute commute into the hospital at that time. You know, when you have that much time to think about stuff, you really start going down a rabbit hole really quickly. So, you know, all the thoughts about, okay, so I have to do this first this second, this third, and so forth, I got myself worked up going in. And I made that whole entire case about myself, which at the end of the day, that's the last thing that a expert nurse or a nurse in general, that's not our motive at all. Like our nurse is supposed to be an advocate for a patient regardless of what you're doing. And because I felt alone and I felt like I had a whole bunch of things that I had to do from a clinical perspective that my total view left that patient's care, that something just happened to a person, and she's having the worst day of her life, but I made it about myself. That event was very humbling to me. I left that exam feeling awful about the care that I provided. I felt awful about what that girl just told me. It just launched me into wanting to be the very best that I possibly could. It gave me a drive to want to learn everything that I needed to know so that the kit and the procedures and all of that stuff can fall by the wayside, and I can put 100% of my attention on that patient and actually hear what they're saying.
3: Almost a decade later... Faith's now an expert sane, and she's contemplating broader questions about how best to deliver care to sexual assault victims, which she's going to break down for us right now in more detail.
4: How do you keep a program in a rural community where they don't see very many patients to keep their competencies up? Their hospital does not have as much money to keep a program that You know, we don't get money to do this. Um, I mean, we get very little money from the government to do this, but the total cost definitely outweighs what we're receiving back. So for the hospital, they're eating the cost for a lot of these exams. So how do you keep that confidence and that confidence in the nurses to keep doing this work for their community? In a rural community, when we have the same type of problems in an urban setting, where I see 300, 400 patients a year, and I can't keep nurses on staff, so that kind of launched into her, you know, whole initiative and vision, and uh, for this program of supplying really great expert care of nurses that do this every single day, day in and day out, and they're known in their communities for doing this. Transplanting them into these rural communities where. They don't have the luxury of asking somebody like, hey, I have this. What do you think I should do? Or this is what I see. Is this indicative of anything? Having answers to those questions early on in my career, even now, like if I was clinically practicing, it would have been amazing just to have somebody else look and hear what I was doing so that I could have somebody else to run stuff by. That would have been really great. So We built this whole center around that concept that we're going to take expert nurses that do this every day, transplant them into a community where that's not available, so that ultimately the patient can get really great care and the nurse feels confident that she is giving really great care to that patient.
3: When it came to hiring the expert telesanes, there were a lot of applicants. It took some time to figure out who would be the best fit for this kind of work, which requires being on-call numerous times a month on top of their everyday work demands.
4: The people that are on our team are the ones managing their programs. So they have a Monday through Friday job with on-call hours and obligations, and they're running their own teams and dealing with their own fires and their own healthcare systems about how to keep their programs up and running. So they take about 48 hours of on-call for us. And then every month we have a team meeting where we all come together via telehealth or via our our solution and we meet and we talk about what's going on in the program.
3: Burnout is one of the big concerns for the team as SANE nurses are especially prone to it.
4: Because there's so few of us and the demand for us is just growing exponentially with the Me Too movement and people, victims, feeling comfortable coming to get help right after it happens. And that's amazing, right? That's what we want. But higher demands means that we need more people to do it. So burnout's definitely a factor. Um, Something that I know that I struggled with in my career was when I got into this, I didn't have children. When I became a sexual assault nurse examiner and a forensic nurse, I didn't have children. And I was able to compartmentalize a lot of what I was hearing and seeing. And any nurse would be able to understand this next statement, but you were able to leave it there when you left. After I had kids, it became real. And it was it was a really big struggle for me in the sense that I wasn't able to leave my job at the brick-and-mortar building anymore. When I left, all I saw was those things that I saw at work happening to my kids and things like that. And that was really difficult for me to go through. And because of our small community... At that time when that was happening, I didn't know who to reach out to because I didn't have my direct leadership, didn't have the same type of experiences that I had, so they couldn't necessarily relate to what I was seeing and hearing. They could in roundabout ways, but I couldn't just come out and say what it is that I was feeling. So it's isolating in the fact that same nurses hear a very different approach to some of the horrific things that happen to people. And if you don't know how to cope with those things, it can be devastating to your career as a forensic nurse. And that's exactly what we see. So on average, a sexual assault nurse burns out in about a year. That's the livelihood of them, unless they're really invested. Um, And those are the people that are usually running the programs, the ones that are really invested. And they have administration and leadership from the hospital that wants to see you succeed for the community. So it's about a year. So it's an ever-revolving door that nurses are coming in. We're training them because it's almost like the CSI effect where they think, oh, this is a really cool field of nursing. I want to get into it. It, um, You know, you get to do swabs and evidence collection and deal with crime. And it's really um, something fascinating to people. But then they get in and they see that it's more than just a, a rape kit, right? It's more than just this box of swabs and you're collecting. It's a person, it's a person that something bad has just happened to them, and you're the one that has to start picking up the pieces to help
3: them continue on with their life. So it can be a lot. But with the pilot, there's hope that the same nurses on the ground are finally getting the support they need and that they won't burn out.
4: The amount of training that you go through doesn't prepare you for the first time that you hear the story come from the person's mouth. It doesn't prepare you for that. It doesn't prepare you to how to emotionally, internally react from the standpoint of like, gosh, like, can it get worse from here? And the reality is, is it can, right? There's always another history that's going to trump the last one that you heard. And I honestly believe from my experience that if the safety center support wasn't there for her to have that debriefing that occurred after the fact where she could really just talk about her real unfiltered feelings of how she felt about what she heard and what she saw with somebody that has heard and saw it many times before I don't know that she would still be with us and it would be a tremendous loss to our field if we ever lost somebody like Jessica to that history that she heard because she's going to make a world of difference for her patients in her community with just her being who she is.
3: The case Faith is talking about involved Jessica Burbeck at Soldiers and Sailors in Wellsboro. Jessica is a registered nurse and the hospital's nurse educator. She's worked at Soldiers and Sailors for the past four years, and recently she went through training to become a SANE.
5: You're seeing, I think, some of the worst of humanity exhibited on somebody else. And so it can be incredibly taxing.
3: Jessica told me about the first case she had.
5: We were kind of blind to what was coming in. We just knew that asexual assault patient was coming into the hospital, so we didn't know what was happening until they actually got here. I mean, there were a lot of cultural things that we don't really see in our community very much. and made it a very complex case, and it ended up being Jana French was the same that I worked with on this other side um, through State College just having her expertise where she has worked with this patient population before. She's done sexual assault on this type of patient population that we have not really seen very much of was huge. So she was able to give me tidbits and give me tips of how I can handle this or what my forensic evidence should be focused on. This patient had a lot of injuries that we had to photograph. The patient had a lot of injuries that we had to do swabs on. So I actually had to open up a second kit to get more swabs out of it. So it was very, very complicated. And then you threw on a lot of cultural and a lot of emotional pieces to it. And I was so thankful to have the safety team there walking me through it. So you approach it just like you do any other nursing assessment and you kind of do a head-to-toe assessment and you do an interview, but the stakes just are very high and the emotions are very high. So you have to kind of have to keep yourself in a very calm place to be able to To give the patients the best care they can get.
3: What do you think helped you stay calm?
5: I think knowing that I wanted to do a good job with this patient, that I wanted to make sure that they, you know, they had been through something horrendous and I wanted to make sure that I was the best nurse that I could be for them because they deserved it. So I think knowing that, you know, I had to put any shock and awe aside in order to really deliver the best care I can to this patient helped me kind of focusing on them. And in nursing, you just see all sorts of crazy stuff. So I think nurses in general, once you start going through your process, I think it's a learned practiced behavior where it's difficult for things to really kind of throw you. When you're resuscitating a patient in the middle of a code, you would thinking about it beforehand, it's one of the scariest things you think you'll ever encounter. And when you're in the midst of it, your hands and your mind just do what they're trained to do.
3: Jessica says she couldn't have imagined putting this specialty into practice without the guidance and support of the safety program that she's received so far
5: the support that we get is not just the same on the monitor with us during that time. We have weekly meetings with them. They come up here and do specialized trainings where we run through a scenario. We run through the documentation. We run through the skills of how to collect the swabs, how to do different parts of the exam, how to ask the questions in ways that are non-threatening. So that support is huge. And then afterwards, we have quality reviews with it. So somebody watches my entire exam and tells me, you you know you did a great job with this and this is what you could do a little bit better one example is with the one case that I've done I said over and over you know thank you for telling me your story thank you for telling me your story again and I would say you know can you tell me a story and how this happened and she said you know that was good but you know stories can make it seem like it's made up and she said you know a better way would be saying thank you for telling me what happened just say it just like that thank you for telling me what happened or what happened here and I never thought of that.
3: When I was at Soldiers and Sailors, I also got to sit down and talk with Matt Romania. He's the hospital's chief nursing officer and has been on board with the safety program from the very first time he ever heard about it. For Matt, the hospital was greatly in need of this kind of support.
6: Safety looks at the entire patient. It's not just collecting the evidence. It's psychosocially, it's the law enforcement side of things, it's the peer review, so after action so they get together and talk about what support and coach on some things that might need some improvement and talk about from a collegial perspective, you know, what can we do better, how can they serve us better, how can we serve the patient better collectively.
3: Matt got into nursing because of his mother, who was a nurse, and he's held various positions over the years. But being at the administrative level, Matt sees opportunities to problem solve and how best to step up the care being provided. He's been at Soldiers and Sailors now for six years.
6: We're a small community hospital that just switched to critical access designation, which means that we are limited to 25 inpatient beds and a number of observation patients, and that's a whole other conversation. But we are a full-service hospital, but since uh, we get critical access designation, we do have a bit of a bump in payment. We're paid a little differently. But the government designates that hospitals that meet that criteria designate us as critical access Because we typically are at a disadvantage either geographically or, you know, recruitment, et cetera. So we are the single hospital provider, acute care provider for the entire county. And uh, the next closest hospital is about an hour away, and that's another critical access hospital in either direction, east or west. So... As you can imagine, we take care of bread and butter uh, patients, meaning general surgery, obstetrics, uh, orthopedics, et cetera. Anything that needs a higher level of care or a subspecialty, we do tend to transfer out to other facilities. We have a sister hospital in Williamsport that we typically transfer patients to. But that doesn't mean that we're not busy or extremely busy. Um, you know, our ER is. Is a happening place, if you will, and we see our fair share of traumatic patients or heart attacks, et cetera. But uh, with our um, merging with uh, larger institutions, you know, we've had um, a cancer treatment center move to the community, whereas otherwise they would have had to travel over an hour to get cancer treatment.
3: But one area that the hospital has especially needed extra support around is the care of sexual assault victims. Matt says sexual assault survivors had been particularly underserved. On multiple occasions, law enforcement authorities couldn't even use the evidence that hospital staff had collected.
6: We were collecting the information to the best of our abilities. As we come to find out, a lot of it wasn't submissible because we weren't doing it in a manner that was... um, Correct. So that led us to question, is this a service that we can offer? We have to, but is this a service that will be best offered at a place that's better prepared? And then you come to the question, do we transfer these people? After going through this, do you transfer them like an hour away? That's not serving our community well, right? So then along comes safety.
3: And for Matt, the pilot program's benefits are already starting to become clear. Just six months in, particularly from peer reviews and support from more experienced Saints.
6: I'm a firm believer in this project. I've seen the uh, the benefit it's had here in our community. Uh, you know, again, our volumes are low, but this is even more of a reason to have telemedicine in here. I mean there are other similar projects and services out there, but there's value added here.
3: Matt is one of those ideal administrators that Sheridan told me about. He really gets it, the value and importance of the safety program, and he's dedicated to supporting sexual assault nursing at his hospital. Sheridan says buy-in at the top at these sites is really critical, and not just so the program can thrive locally, because this initiative could be a major game changer for sexual assault victim care in rural areas across the nation. But Sheridan says she has a lot of work to do and questions to answer to show that the pilot is effective.
1: Total funding for this project is $4.1 million. Right now, all of our funds are from Department of Justice, the Office for Victims of Crime. And we have — recently we're waiting for a grant that we have submitted to the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency that is exactly those funds, the Victim of Crime funds. That's who I believe should fund this forevermore. However, I also think there's a huge obligation on my part to be able to demonstrate — you know, to generate the science that shows that it's effective.
3: Tracking outcomes will be critical given that it's a multifaceted endeavor when it comes to sexual assault.
1: Can we tell if you went? Or if you went to that hospital and left because you were waiting too long? Or what kind of provider saw you at that hospital? Was it somebody who was trained to do this work or somebody who wasn't? If you were always with somebody who is a sane or is is trained to do this work, are those people who get that kind of care more likely to talk to law enforcement Those warm handoffs and feeling cared for in that first moment, we know with kids that if the first person they tell that they were abused believes them, they're much more likely to be able to be consistent in their statements. I think that's not different with adults. If we come to a place, somebody cares, then then would we see differences? So I think if we could track all of those pieces, we would have a much better picture of what we need to do next.
3: One hallmark of the safety protocol is to contact sexual assault victim advocates to come to the hospital while the victim is there. Before, the hospital would refer the victim to an advocacy agency, whereas the new setup removes the burden of having to take that step. The change isn't meant to facilitate longitudinal research, but will undoubtedly help with tracking outcomes.
1: We know that trauma has an impact on people's health long-term. So, I think we have an opportunity um, to look at healthcare utilization after an assault. And that's something that we're asking permission from people who participate in research and who have experienced. Is that we hope if they have had a good experience in that first exam, where they're paired with an advocate and we talk about the resources that are available to them, that They'll have this proactive utilization of let's get mental health treatment, other sorts of things to deal with the aftermath of what they're experiencing from trauma. So, our intention is then to look at do they access healthcare and for other things? So, you know, ER visits. Our hope is that if we do this first part well, maybe we will see less ER visits for anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, other things that might really be correlated with the aftermath of trauma. So our plan is to really try and follow some of the health trajectory, as well as the judicial and and other outcomes that might happen.
3: Besides tracking potential long-term health outcomes, Sheridan says there's the legal considerations and what happens in terms of prosecutions.
1: Does law enforcement feel like the quality of evidence is better? Do the district attorneys feel more confident? In the testimony that a SANE nurse might provide, can we teach the SANE nurse in that community how to share with the district attorney what they do so they can be useful in that realm? We are putting on a large training for all of our nurses around how to be an expert witness because nurses are not taught that.
3: Sheridan says she's working with a colleague at Penn State's law school to develop training to that end. She says it's not about being punitive, really, but because some perpetrators are repeat offenders. It's also about preventing future assaults and more victimization. The safety program also holds some promise as a partial fix to the vacuum in data on sexual assault. Part of the problem is that sex crimes are notoriously underreported to law enforcement, and that's where law and policymakers tend to turn to when they're trying to define the problem. Typically, they consult the FBI's uniform crime reports, and Sheridan says the way that information is collected exacerbates the situation.
1: Not all jurisdictions report to UCR. They have a really interesting definition of rape and assault, so not everybody's counted. Um, So I think if we wanted to understand who comes in for health care, all hospitals for sexual assault don't bill insurance. Instead, they bill the Victim of Crime Fund. So most states should have that data.
3: But even then, she says, you're missing the people who don't ever seek medical care.
1: That's an issue that Department of Health and legislators should say, why don't we understand this problem better, and let's fund the creation of something that will serve our state better to really understand how big the problem is.
3: To Sheridan, now might finally be the time, as there's a growing recognition of sexual assault as a public health problem and its severity. And additional dialogue is helping to empower still more victims to come forward.
1: People didn't want to talk about that before, and those are things that happened to other people. And now that's not true. We have people coming forward and really being able to state that. I think it's an unprecedented time for us to try and harness some action, resources, investment in solving this problem. It is horrifying how large it is. And as a nurse and as a scientist, to look at the data that we know about what trauma does to people, like we have to solve this. So I'm heartened to see how many people are willing to come forward. And I think it will just help everybody that comes behind them.
0: Special thanks to Sheridan Miyamoto, Faith Mong, Matt Romania, Laura Coates, and Jessica Burbeck for taking time to talk with us. We also want to thank the advocates from Haven of Tioga County for talking with us as well and providing insight into the work they do. Funding for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and the AARP Foundation, along with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. You can find out more about us and our programs at paactioncoalition.org. Follow us on social media at paaction. We'd love to hear from you. Stephanie Marudas of Kuvinda Media is our producer. And I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.